Welcome to Talk of the Town on 2SER, in which we bring you coverage of events around Sydney. I'm Ryan Stanton, and this week we're delving into another set of talks from the recent TEDx Macquarie University event. Over the next hour and in the coming weeks, you're going to hear talks from some of the speakers at this recent event discussing a variety of topics, from issues of inequality to the healing power of cake. Each talk brings you a new idea that, in the spirit of TED Talks, we think is worth sharing. This week, we're focusing on the talks about one of the most persistent topics of conversation in modern society, gender. From gender inequality to awareness, the four speakers you'll hear from each have a unique issue that they want to discuss. First up, Dr. Robin Clay Williams asks an important question. Why is everything designed for men? Oh, and just a note before we play her talk for you, like some of the other speakers, Dr. Robin uses slides. Her talk still makes sense, but you may miss a reference or two. So if you want the full experience, feel free to head to YouTube. Search for TEDx Macquarie University and you'll find a playlist with all the talks for you to watch and get the complete story if you so desire. Now, with that out of the way, here's Dr. Robin. This is a C-130 Hercules transport aircraft. It's Australia's uh, military airlifter that's designed to continue to carry out tactical operations, to, so to land on short airstrips or to drop paratroops or gear out of the back by parachute. You might have seen it over the last 20 years operating into or out of Afghanistan or the Middle East, but it's not just a combat aircraft. It also does humanitarian missions. So we've used it to locate uh, lone yachtsmen in the Southern Ocean who've been missing, and it's dropped supplies to keep them safe until they can be rescued by ship. It helped evacuate or medivac the survivors from the Bali bombing in 2002. And it's also used to support our farmers. So if the roads are closed due fire or flood, this aircraft can drop supplies out of the back so that they can feed their cattle. This is the cockpit of the C-130J. And as you can see, it's designed to be flown by two pilots. And it's got two twin head-up displays. This is a close-up of the head-up display. It's a piece of see-through glass, and you project the flight symbology onto it so the pilot can actually see, so they can land precisely on a short runway at night or fly below the tops of mountaintops in the valleys and still be able to keep their head outside the cockpit rather than having to look inside at the instruments. So I was the test pilot uh, that tested this aircraft for the Australian Air Force. I work with Lockheed Martin in the United States. And when I first sat in the cockpit to evaluate this head-up display symbology, this is what I saw. Yes, a blank screen. Why might that be? That's because this aircraft, like every other military aircraft at that time, had been designed for a pilot of a certain size. And that size was a, a Navy male pilot of the 1960s. So how does that work? Well, we all come in different shapes and sizes, and we have to know something about the shape and size of people so that we can design things to fit them, whether it's clothing or whether it's seats or whether it's cars or buses or planes or trains. We need to know the size. The, the study of the size of people is called anthropometrics, and anthropometrics are measured in percentiles. So if, for example, in height, you are a one percentile person, that means that 99% of the population will be taller than you. So here's a diagram. So as you can see, men and women, and this is just in stature or height, men and women have quite different profiles. Um, and if you were to design for, for example, the fifth percentile woman, who would be 152 centimetres tall, to the 95th percentile male, who would be 188 centimetres tall, you then have something that's designed for 90% of the population. But the head-up display was just designed for the blue group. So with a head-up display, in order to be able to see it, you have to have your eyes in a thing called the HUD eye box. Now, the eye box is this imaginary space. It's about five centimetres high. It's about 12 to 15 centimetres wide. And if your eyes aren't in that spot, you can't see the symbology at all. So as you can see, that's me sitting in the C-130 cockpit, and my eyes are below the hard eye box, hence the screen was blank. So we managed to fix this problem. We put the seat up by two notches. It was a design change. And 
there you go, my heart and my eyes are now in the eye box, but there's flow on effects from this. So now that my seat's higher, my feet are further away from the rudder pedals. <laughs> so we had to redesign the rudder pedals so they had further travel forward. And also, uh, once we solved that, this aircraft is flown with a control yoke and roll. And because my seat was so high, the control yoke wouldn't roll. So we then had to make the yoke narrower. And by narrowing the yoke, it made the aircraft heavier to fly and changed the whole characteristics of it. And we had to redo quite a lot of the test program. So in case you're thinking, you know, well, this is 20 years ago, how could that happen today? In only April this year, NASA scheduled a spacewalk that inadvertently involved two female astronauts. But they only had one suit that, was, that fitted both of them. So they had to reschedule and send a male along as well. So NPR Radio in 2006 reported that this limitation in the number of smaller suits for women was actually restricting the number of women who could be astronauts and go into space. They used to have smaller suits in the 1960s, but when they had a glitch and had to redesign, they just got rid of the small one and they now only have medium, large and very large suits. So in the Air Force uh, in the past and still now, women have trouble because the helmet and the face mask are designed for a face that is both wider and longer than the average female face. So things like the oxygen mask, for example, has to be clamped on so tight that it can be painful so that it doesn't fall off when the women pull G. The aircraft seats are designed for male. We talked a little bit about the C-130J. Many women have to, or smaller people, have to go out to the aircraft with two, three, sometimes four cushions so that they can put a cushion behind them and under their butt so they can actually reach the control columns. The armour that women wear when they go into combat is often too large and can make it difficult or uncomfortable to fly. And the pistol holster that is normally meant to sit at the shoulder is actually too long for the female torso and they often have to have it strapped to the leg. Even something like a G-suit, here's me with a G-suit, it's the thing that goes around your abdomen and your legs and it consists of air bladders and when you pull G, the air bladders inflate and they push against your legs and abdomen to keep the blood in your chest and head so that you don't black out. So these things are designed for men though, so they're straight up and down. So for most women, to get them to fit around the hips, they're too loose around the waist. So even when it inflates, it doesn't do its job properly. So you may think that uh, these are just problems that apply to a rare and unusual few, but it's surprising how many things there are that are designed with men in mind. This is a fifth percentile female hand in comparison with a 95th percentile male hand. Think about the smartphone. The smartphones are designed for a male to operate one-handed, whereas most females need at least two hands to operate the phones. And don't get me started about trying to fit them in your pocket. <laughs> That's if you have pockets. <laughs> <laughs> So even in the home, the, maybe the traditional female, female domain, some things are surprisingly still designed with men in mind. Maybe women don't eat salsa. <laughs> or pickles. And am I the only one who can't reach the top shelf in the bookcase or the top kitchen cupboards without having to stand on something? In my home, in my garage door, the roller door, we've got a piece of rope attached to the handle so that I can pull it back down after I get out of the car. Now, we're just used to this. We think that this is the way things are always designed, this is the way they have to be, and we make adjustments. But should we have to do that? Even in cars, it's only recently that the safety of cars has been designed with women in mind. It's only in the last five or ten years that they've used female uh, dummies to actually test, to test uh, car accidents. Um, in 2011, they found that female drivers had a 47% chance of higher injury because the car was actually designed with a male dummy in mind rather than a female. Even seatbelts have only recently started to be designed for women where there's an option to actually lower the shoulder holster. Um, a, a, the sort of design that would normally work well for women would actually be a four-point harness because it distributes evenly across the breast, but it's only racing car drivers that get these, and they're usually men. Once we hit the work domain, 
it becomes even more obvious. A lot of tools are, desize, are designed for the size of a men's grip. Uh, that's me trying to grab my sander at home on the right-hand side. And as you can see, it's quite, it's quite difficult to grasp and I can only do jobs for a small period of time. A brick is designed for the width of an average male hand. A lot of these things we just assume that's always the way it is and it's the only way it can be and that women will just need to adjust. Even something as simple as a ladder, the rungs in a ladder are space for the average male step height. So women can find it quite difficult to get up and down a ladder safely, especially people such as firefighters when they're carrying heavy loads. The Australian Bureau of Statistics in 2018 found only 12% of the construction industry were female, and most of those are in the office, not on the construction side. And even more disturbing, this has worsened over the last 20 years. So perhaps it's de the design of some of our tools that is contributing to this statistic. So before you think it's just blue collar workers, these are laparoscopic tools used in surgery. Uh, they found in studies that women or those with smaller hands have had much more wrist injuries from using these particular um, tools because of the height and the grip size. Um, in particular, um, the stapler for most people with smaller hands such as women requires a two-handed grip, and the height of the table can mean that people have back problems or back injuries. So that's to do with grip, but let's think about temperature. Even our office temperature has been designed with men in mind. You guessed it, the, the average temperature for an office of 20 degrees Celsius was designed for a 40-year-old 70-kilogram male in the 1960s. If you're a woman and you're feeling a bit cold at work and need to rug up, that's because the temperature is about five degrees Celsius too cold for you. So they've done a study on this um, and looked at increasing the temperature from 20 to 25 degrees Celsius and found that performance for women improved quite dramatically. So 44% fewer keyboard errors, errors and 150% increased keying output by putting that temperature up by five degrees. So what are the implications of this for women? What it means is it means women will find it more difficult to operate in the world. It means they may be put off from doing some things. They'll be looking at it and thinking, well, why don't I do that well? And blame themselves rather than the fact that, it's not be that things have not been designed for them. Some occupations they just won't try. And the ones that they do try, they might be judged as less competent purely because the tools designed to do the job are not fitted for their particular size. But we can design that works for everybody, and we should do it. Look at the smartwatch. We can have different size smartwatches, and that jar of salsa is going to taste just as good whether it comes in a short, fat, or tall, skinny jar. <laughs> Even robotic surgery. The new da Vinci machine has pretty much taken size out of the equation. So rather than sitting at the operating table, the operator sits at a separate chair at a computer. Now, while everybody finds this particular machine difficult to master, a study in 2019 found that women actually excelled in this and performed both faster and more accurately than men when using a robotic simulator. Designing for, for female gender not only works for women, but it also works for any of those who are maybe smaller and not as strong as the average. Alison Bell uh, did some study in New South Wales and found that a lot of older people in hospitals were actually suffering malnutrition because they couldn't open the food packages on, the, on there that they were given to eat. 40% uh, couldn't open the drink bottles and 80% experienced difficulty with at least one item of food and of that 80%, a third of them didn't even ask for help. So what do we do? How can, how can we design for women? Well, if you ask men, They'll say, pink it and shrink it. <laughs> and they'll add a pink tax to make it more expensive. But, but, but what if we ask women? What if we ask women what they want? Well, Klaus Schrader in Denmark did that. He talked to women about what they wanted with their technology, and he found that they wanted it to be functional rather than just look good. 
If they were wearing their technology, they wanted it to blend in with their clothing and not stand out the way men do. And they also wanted to be, be able to use their, their technology as a social tool rather than just as an end in itself. Now, not only could we ask women, let's include them on the design team. So in 2018, women made up only 22% of the design workforce in the UK. And in Australia, it was no better, only 19.5%. And if you look at the number of female leaders in design, it's even worse. So let's try and encourage women and get more of them on the design team. So finally, if we want to improve design for everyone, we need to really think about gender-based design. We need to think about inclusion. We need to think about diversity. If we want gender equality, then we need to think about gender-based design. We need to think about designing not just for male pilots, but for all pilots. We need to think about not just tools for those who are already doing the work, but tools that might help others who are currently excluded from the workplace to participate in the workforce. We've all got a part to play in, de in designing our world, so let's all play that part by making it an equal playing ground. Thank you. Dr. Robin Clay-Williams, discussing the need for gender-based design at the TEDx conference at Macquarie University. According to Dr. Robin, there's a large inequality in the design of things that marginalizes women. For more on her talk, I decided to give her a call and ask about what exactly led her to this conclusion. So, how did you get involved with the TEDx conference? So I was asked to participate by a colleague, Hosai Gul, at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation. Uh, she was one of the people that was coordinating the TEDx at Macquarie. And so once you were asked, how did you choose what you were going to talk about? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I wanted to talk about something that um, I was passionate about. And I've been interested in uh, design and, and gender-based design for a number of years now. So it, it's not exactly what I do for my work. It's aligned to what I do for my work, uh, which is human factors. But most of my human factors at work is healthcare, whereas this is more human factors in design. So it was a good opportunity to talk about something that I cared about um, that was not work. I did want to touch on that. You've worn a lot of hats over the years, test pilot, engineer, flight instructor, and, you know, researcher. Yep. What led you specifically to be interested in this field? Oh, okay, because it does actually, it is one thing that I've got in common with everything I've done. So I started um, an interest in human factors from when I was a test pilot. Um, test pilots uh, assess aircraft all human factors, they, they assess the design of aircraft to make sure that it can be flown by what we would call the average pilot. So the idea is not just to have something that can be flown by the best pilots, but something that could be flown by all pilots. So in order to do that, you've got to make sure that it's been designed that way. So um, you have to look at all the edge of bell curve parts of the design. So, you know, is it is it good for the biggest pilot? Is it good for the smallest pilot? Is it good for the you know, the most dexterous pilot or the... So, so you have to assess all of these things. And it becomes really obvious how easy um, the design of something can affect how well someone does when they try to use it. So um, something like flying, like people might say, well, they're a really good pilot or they're not a good pilot. But, but the design of the aircraft has, is a big contributor to that. And a lot of people don't realise to what extent the design of things um, can make people either do a good job or make it easy to do a good job or make it very, very difficult to do. Why do you think that the design of things is so predominantly skewed towards uh, men? Uh, I think it's just men have been the, traditionally the designers. I mean, I mean, if you're going to design or build something, you build it with your own, from your own perspective. I mean, we always have these biases when we sort of do things for us from our own perspective. And because most designers have been men, then they've been designed basically by and for men. 
Um, I, I don't think they're deliberately saying, oh, look, I only want to design for men. I think they just think that they're designing something that works for everybody. They just don't realise how big the spectrum of people is in the world that aren't men. What I am curious, what in your experience, because you said it's a commonality in all these fields, what in your experience is the most egregious example of something that has been designed for men and not women? What stood out to you? Uh, well, aircraft in particular, um, up until certainly the turn of the century, they were designed exclusively for men. So so women could only fly them if they were, were male-sized um, or fitted into that. And for a while, they'd only recruit women. For example, the military would only recruit women that uh, were more than 163 centimetres tall. And part of that, this is for flying, this is, and part of that is so that they could actually fly the aircraft. We still have a lot of aircraft down in our infantry that were designed in the 80s and the 90s. So until they go out of service, um, you know, they still need to be that size. And the trouble is the air, our Air Force is so small, or our Army as well as flies or Navy, they're such small organisations that they can't recruit to a specific aircraft type. They recruit a pilot that can fly anything and then they'll stream you to, to a type. So once um, once the older aircraft are decommissioned, though, there's probably no reason why smaller people couldn't fly. I am curious. Are you familiar with any 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 products or any instances where it is flipped? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the things that are the things that it's traditional things. So stereotypical things. So things that women will traditionally use that maybe guys won't. So something like say a pair of nail scissors, for example. Right, you find the little yeah. hole in the scissors is quite small. It's quite hard for a guy to get his fingers in to, to operate them. So, you know, the, or sewing scissors, you know, things that are designed for traditional female roles are, are often designed for quite small hands. Is it difficult to design for everybody because that encompasses such a broad category of sizes, shapes, types of people? Is, is that a challenge? Um, yeah, it is, a cha- it is a challenge. Sometimes you have to have a few different versions of things. Like you can't just design one thing that works for everybody, but you have a few different ones. So examples of things, I mean, some of the Apple products, like the Apple Watch, for example, they've got a larger version and a smaller version. Or, um, I mean, there are a lot of things out there where they have different sizes. I mean, think of things like a bicycle, for example. You know, they size the bicycle for the individual. So, so you can do that. I mean, it's, it's quite hard to have one thing. Like, if you can imagine having one bicycle frame that fitted everybody, well, that's not going to work. But you can have versions available. I mean, things like the spacesuits, um, they used to have small and extra small available. They just, didn't, they just didn't stop producing them back in the 90s, and they don't produce them anymore. So it's definitely possible. Yeah, um, and I imagine part of the making them, you know, multiple versions is also sort of not putting a pink tax on it, Right. Yeah, well, that's yeah, absolutely, that's true. But I mean, a lot of it too is it's it's economical as well. It's economics as well. I mean, if you think about a company, you know, that they're going to want to design for the majority of people that work for them. So if they're if they're ninety percent one size and only ten percent another size, then they're going to want to put all their resources into the ninety percent, not the ten percent. I mean, this this is the issue with any sort of diversity. Is you know it's 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 always more expensive initially to to be more inclusive because you you have to allow for everybody. I mean it's the same with um, you know things like disability. I mean we're starting to at least design things so that um, to account for people with disability. But for many many years, you know it was just too expensive and people didn't do it. The the last question I wanted to ask you was how can we help change this but you already kind of covered that in your talk you mentioned that we you know we should ask women to be in the design teams and include them in the process so I wanted to for my last question take that a step further and ask how do you think we can encourage uh, women to be on these teams and provide those opportunities to decrease the disparity Um, I think part of it is women realizing that they can make a difference by being on these teams Um, you know, it's not just a case of another person doing the job. They can actually make a material difference to a lot of people um, by doing that. Um, I think as well that, you know, there's potential to while we're getting that happening because I don't think it's instantaneous to suddenly have lots of women in design. But we could certainly look at testing more things on women 
and asking more women about, like, you know, whoever's designing, whether they be male or female, uh, just being more inclusive about who they talk to about designing things and about who they include, you know, as test people with their product. Dr. Rowan Clay-Williams there, talking to me about the genesis of her TEDx talk on the need for more gender-based design. Dr. Rowan highlights the ways in which design often fails to account for and represent women, and that more steps need to be taken to rectify this. Unfortunately, this isn't the only area of life where the representation of women needs some improvement. In our next talk, political scientist Blair Williams discusses the way in which gender tropes and stereotypes seep into the reporting and discussion of women in politics. The talk is called How the Media is Sexist Towards Women Political Leaders. Let's take a listen. I came of age in an era where women ran this country, but instead of feeling hopeful and inspired, I felt tired and weary as a young woman trying to navigate my way in a seemingly more hostile Australia. It was two days before my 17th birthday when Julie Gillard became Australia's first woman prime minister. And it was on my 20th birthday when she was deposed. Happy birthday to me. Seeing a woman finally become prime minister brought hope to many that our country was finally changing, that women were able to be in leadership positions and break the highest glass ceiling. Yet, you know, she experienced a lot of sexism and misogyny from those within her own party, as well as the opposition, the media, and society. And this kind of sexism really tarred how we saw uh, Gillard uh, in her prime ministerial role, in the sense that it showed us how women, even the most privileged women in this country, can still face the wrath of sexism and gender double standards. So it, I remember thinking to myself at the time, if this is how we treat the most privileged women in this country, then what does that mean for the rest of us? So despite feeling disillusioned, I ended my 20s motivated to further understand this phenomenon. And so I started a PhD to see if women prime ministers from other countries also experienced this kind of gendered coverage. So to do this, I examined newspaper articles from, uh, from the time of the UK's Ma uh, Margaret Thatcher, as well as more recently Theresa May, as well as Jenny Shipley and Helen Clark from New Zealand. I examined every single newspaper article written uh, on these leaders in the first three weeks of their prime ministerial term. I looked at a range of newspapers uh, across the board, from the progressive press to the conservative press, from tabloids to broadsheets. In the end, I examined 1,039 newspaper articles, though I mentioned that the coverage of Gillard made up nearly half of this alone. So I analysed the articles through a quantitative analysis or a content analysis, examining how many times certain words, phrases and themes are used, as well as a qualitative analysis or a discourse analysis to examine the uh, covert and overt messages and how they're communicated by these newspapers. I even looked at the visual elements, examining photographs and political cartoons. So I'm finally at the end of my PhD journey. I just submitted on Thursday. And, <laughs> which is great to coincide with today. Uh, <laughs> and thankfully, I have a much better understanding of this phenomenon. Um, I found through my research that the media rely on what I call gender tropes. So a trope generally refers to common or overused themes, uh, such as the film trope that evil characters must wear black or that superheroes must wear capes. A gendered trope, though, refers to common or overused themes that rely on gendered stereotypes. Um, for example, that women must be naturally nurturing, pretty and docile, or that men are aggressive and rugged. <clears throat> and I found that the media rely on five gender tropes in particular in their coverage of these leaders. The first trope is the gender and femininity trope. Uh, 
So gender here refers to the media examining their gender identity through words such as female, woman, girl, lady, wife, mother, the list goes on. And this is quite evident through statements such as woman prime minister, female leader, even iron lady. And when I examined the newspaper articles, this came up in roughly 40% of articles for all these leaders, ranging from 36% in the coverage of Julie Gillard to 50% uh, in the coverage of Theresa May. But the media also emphasised their femininity. And femininity refers to those traits that we stereotypically associate with women, uh, that we must be you know, warm, nurturing, compassionate, empathetic, and docile. And this happened in roughly half of the articles that I examined. So this is every single newspaper article, and it came up in almost half, from 34% in the coverage of Margaret Thatcher to nearly 60% in the coverage of Helen Clark. But what does this actually look like? Well, they were portrayed as housewives and headmistresses who should be you know, staying home to look after their children, to keep the children in line, rather than you know, running a government or as uh, housekeepers who were seen to clean up the mess that their male counterparts had made, evident through statements such as sweeping up parliament, uh, spring cleaning government, or sweeping away corruption. This kind of coverage really emphasizes their gender and can trivialize them in their, in their role as leader because it essentially portrays them as women first and politicians second. The second trope is the first names trope, where these leaders are referred to by their first names in these newspaper articles. And this often happened in the headings of the articles uh, to grab the reader's attention. Despite there being examples of male leaders also being referred to, their, uh, referred to by their first names, like Kevin Rudd or Kevin 07 in Australia, or even Boris Johnson in the UK, these narratives are largely started by these men themselves. And it just isn't as frequent for them as it is for women prime ministers. And this kind of goes against me the media tradition where they usually uh, refer to leaders by their last names, with or without their titles. So if we refer to men by their last names, but women by their first names, this really conveys certain messages about how we see women in political leadership. can be seen to be disrespectful and can delegitimize them in their roles as they're portrayed to be less serious actors than their male counterparts, which can have quite negative ramifications for women in male-dominated fields like politics. The third gender trope is the appearance trope, where these leaders' appearances are often scrutinized by the media. And this happened in roughly one in five articles I looked at for all leaders, um, with nearly one in three in the coverage of Theresa May to, uh, and one in four in the coverage of Julia Gillard. Their hair, skin, body, you know, all those sorts of things were often centered in news stories that should instead have focused on you know, actual policies. And it seemed as if what they were wearing and what they looked like was more important than what they actually stood for. And this kind of news distracts, I mean, not only the, the woman leader, uh, but also greater society. It distracts us from, from actual news. And I remember in my interview with Julie Gillard at the start of the year, she mentioned how frustrated she was with the amount of time that the media spent focusing on women leaders' appearances. Um, she said that this can obviously impact girls and women, um, but that it also reinforces the idea that men are judged on their actions, whereas women are judged on their looks. But she said this goes beyond that, that it can also impact our electoral processes because the more time the media spend focusing on uh, these leaders' appearances, the less there is for more pressing issues, like their policy platform. The fourth gender trope is the family trope, where these leaders are portrayed as wives, mothers or childless, and daughters. And this harks back to the traditional idea that women must be loving wives and doting mothers, 
But it puts these leaders into a double bind, a difficult bind, uh, where, you know, if they have a husband, they risk being seen as only a wife rather than being independent, and their competency as leader might be questioned. But if they don't have a husband, if they are unmarried, like was the case for Julia Gillard, they are seen to be going against societal norms built around the nuclear family. Um, they, they are seen as unrelatable to the general public, and even their sexuality might be questioned. They're also judged on whether, whether they had kids or not. So if they had children, they were seen as selfish and were questioned about why they weren't staying home to look after their family. But if they didn't have children, then they were again going against these norms and were seen as un, uh, unrelatable to the electorate and therefore unsuitable for office. In my interview with Julie Gillard, she mentioned how this was part and parcel for the double standards put on women in politics, saying that men are never asked the question about you know, who's staying home to look after their children. So why should this question be asked of women? It essentially just invites judgment into these leaders' personal lives and life choices, and like previous tropes, just takes up space that could instead be dedicated to real issues. The fifth and last trope is the Thatcher trope, where these leaders are compared to the UK's first woman prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, unless they are, you know, actually Thatcher herself. And it's not exactly shocking that the UK's second woman prime minister, Theresa May, uh, was frequently compared to Thatcher, from the way she dressed to the way she sounded in parliamentary debates, even to the way she was a supposed dominatrix over her sexually repressed male colleagues. Lovely quote. This is my research. Um, <laughs> but even women from other sides of politics uh, were compared to her. Like Julia Gillard, a leader from the left, was often called a Red Maggie or an Iron Lady, which is quite a contrast from Thatcher's socially and economically conservative politics. So such comparisons imply two things. First, that politics don't really matter when comparing these leaders. And second, that, these, that women are viewed as a homogenous group where the only thing they need to have in common is their gender, and then bam, they'll be compared to Thatcher. So despite there being more women entering politics, particularly leadership positions um, in recent years, the media still portray them in this gendered way. And this can have negative ramifications, obviously for those women in politics, but also greater society. First... These women in, in politics, uh, it, it means that they constantly have to think about how their gender, personal life or appearance are going to be, be betrayed by the media, meaning they might engage in self-limiting behaviour to not be seen as too angry or too emotional, too fashionable or not fashionable enough. And they might, um, they might be seen uh, to be less sincere by the public and they might find it harder to click with the electorate. Second... These messages are being absorbed by younger women, such as myself, who might be even further dissuaded from entering politics, or who might find it hard to navigate their way through a society that treats women in such a hostile manner. And third, it just takes up space. Space that should instead be dedicated to real news, where journalists should hold politicians to account, not for what they wear, or for whether they do or don't have children, but for their policies and their plans. It also just impacts our electoral processes, uh, the electoral process and our democratic process as well, because um, you know, the more time the media spend on this, the less information we are, we are getting. Instead, the media should inform us rather than focus on these issues. So this needs to change. But how do we change this? Well... We need, to, we need to critically analyse the media, critically engage with them and their messages, especially those that they're sending out about women and women in leadership positions. And my gender tropes framework would be quite useful for this because it clearly demonstrates what this gendered coverage actually looks like. So the next time you see the media uh, you know, report on women in politics, think about the kind of messages that they're sending and Think about what this might look like if they were instead talking about a man rather than a woman. We also need to um, hold the media to account each and every time that they do this. And it's happening, for, it's happening since Gillard with Barajiklian, with Palaszczuk, it's happening all the time. 
And I mean, my gender tropes framework will be useful as well because it shows the media what not to do in their, when they report on women in politics. But we need to hold the media to account. We need to, we need to critically engage with them. So take to social media and start discussions about the gender double standards put on women in politics and women in leadership positions. And don't forget to hold the media to account. So through this, we can hopefully start to challenge media norms and change how women in politics are treated and talked about. So imagine a society where women are, view are viewed as competent, capable, and legitimate. A society where our gender, personal life, and appearances don't, you know, don't matter and they're not the focal point. I know I'd rather live in a society where girls and young women can read the media and instead of feeling tired and weary like I once did, can feel hopeful and inspired. Thank you. Blair Williams, ending her TEDx talk about the damaging effects of sexism in political discourse on an optimistic note. This is Talk of the Town on 2SER, bringing you coverage of events around Sydney. This week, we're bringing you all the TEDx talks about gender from Macquarie University's recent event. We've just ended on a positive note, and the next talk continues that trend. Dr. Melina Gogosakis is a research scientist in the medical research sector. She's also a champion for inclusivity in the field, which led her to form a community called Franklin Women for the women working in her sector. Her talk, How to Turn One Big Idea into a Social Enterprise, explains how and why Franklin Women came to be and why it's necessary for modern times. Let's take a listen. I can vividly remember the exact moment that I had my big idea. I was on a plane travelling to Brisbane to visit my family after just moving to Sydney for a career pivot. I used to be a lab-based scientist working in immunisation and had since moved to Sydney to take on a public health role. When I was at the airport, I bought a book, Do Cool Shit. I have no idea why. I've never bought a book like this before, but for some reason in that exact moment, it appealed to me. Of course, I also bought a Mary Claire magazine. <laughs> On the plane, I managed to read both. The first challenged me. It talked about pushing yourself, taking risks, following the path less traveled. The second just so happened to have an insert about professional networks for women working in different sectors and just how valuable these can be for career progression. As I was flipping through this insert, I thought, this is perfect. It is just what I need now in my career. But I was looking through all these groups. There was nothing for women working in the sciences. So in that moment on the plane, I thought maybe I could start one. Surely it wouldn't be that hard. As you will hear, for the rest of my talk, having that idea was actually the easy part. The reason why my idea has seen, since gone on to flourish are because of three factors that I think can be applied to any idea. And it is these that I hope to share with you today. The first is that there was a need. While my initial idea was planted on the plane, the reason why I actually acted was because there was a real need in our sector and that need was personal to me. You see, I was very early on in my research career. I was still navigating what a career as a scientist was going to look like. I didn't think that that traditional career pathway that most scientists were encouraged to follow was right for me, but I had no idea what else was out there. I also knew that I was ambitious. I had different skills that I could apply to my career, and I knew that I had the potential to actually contribute some great things. But all these skills weren't being called upon in my role, and my career trajectory was really being limited by a very hierarchical structure in academic research, 
linked to things like how many years post-PhD I was or how many publications that I've had. But these metrics for success did not actually align with mine. At that stage, I was also going through a really critical point in my life personally. I had just moved to Sydney, as I said, and moved in with my now husband. We were talking about embarking on these, career, on these life milestones, like buying a house in Sydney and starting a family. These things just didn't feel to be conducive with a successful career in health and medical research. I was also talking to my female colleagues, all very brilliant, passionate women pursuing careers that will improve health but they too were embarking on these life milestones. They were taking on caring responsibilities for some of their extended family members. They were having children of their own, getting married, having, buying houses, and they just felt that they couldn't achieve these things that make themselves happy personally and also thrive in their careers. So they were thinking of leaving. Actually, many of them were. And this made me really sad. Actually, at times, it made me quite angry. Not just because we were losing their technical brilliance from research careers themselves, but we were losing, losing them from the health and medical research sector completely, because they really weren't sure about these opportunities that would call upon their skills, but also their uh, passion to improve health. So, like any good scientist, I looked for the data to see if it backed up the anecdotal evidence that I was collecting from my friends. And it seems that it did. Across very diverse metrics, really whatever you look at, although women actually outnumber men at the beginning of health and medical research careers, as you look over their career progression, you start to see the number of women reduce, and they really are underrepresented in leadership positions. Whether you look at the number of women who are successful in receiving government research funding, or the number of women who are holding senior academic positions within the universities, or even a rather simple metric like women who are represented amongst panels or speakers at conferences. So I had my idea, and now I had the evidence. But did I have the courage to act? It was actually 12 months from that moment that I had that fleeting idea on a plane that I ended up launching Franklin Women, a membership-based social enterprise that had the aim to bring together women working in the health and medical research sector but also offer tangible, practical initiatives to support their career progression, whether it was in or outside of academia. I actually distinctly remember a moment where I actually thought that this idea wasn't going to happen. Actually, I lie, there wasn't many, any just one moment. There were many moments. And that was because I was really scared. I've never done anything like this before. I didn't have the skills, I was a scientist. What did I know about running a social enterprise? Did anyone else want an initiative like this that they could tap into? How would I resource it? How would I find the time? I would need people to actually pay to be a part of it. There was a week before that I launched the Franklin Women website where I was sitting in a car with a friend and I was talking to her about all of these fears. I said, what if I launch Franklin Women and then nobody actually joins? Or maybe a few people join. And then what would I do if I have to close the organisation with these few people who were taking part? What would people say? And she said to me, you close the organisation, you refund those few people their money back, and then 12 months later, no one will remember Franklin Women or even you. <laughs> So with those wise words, I launched the Franklin Women website. Six weeks later, we held our first event. It was like holding your biggest birthday party ever and not knowing if anyone was going to turn up. 
But in the weeks before, the registrations started coming in and on the night, we had close to 100 women turn up from diverse roles, organisations and career levels across the health and medical research sector to learn a real practical skill, effective networking. Very few, if any, women who turned up knew other people in the room, yet they had the courage to turn up, to take a risk on this group that no one had ever heard about before. And not only by the end of the night did they leave with some new skills, but they also had a community that was there to support them that has grown since. So that wasn't the only time that I've called upon my inner courage for Franklin women. This is something that's happened for me, I would say monthly, if not weekly at times. Whether it be trying to get the courage um, to overcome my nerves before an event when I was prepping to interview an esteemed speaker from our sector that I otherwise would never have the opportunity to engage with or getting ready for my very first and only live TV interview with BBC News, or even those opportunities that I get that could really make a difference to Franklin women, but were just so intimidating, like sitting in a room of business people to get advice on how to structure the organisation, but actually ending up in tears because I felt so overwhelmed. Yet, every time these opportunities keep presenting themselves to me, I take them. And why I take them is because every time I survive, I grow. And when I grow, Franklin Women grows. And the people that it reach grow too. So I finally had the courage to act. But little did I know that the hardest part was yet to come. And that's delivering on your idea and continuing to deliver on the idea. Believe it or not, that first event with 100 women was five years ago to this month. I would have never have known on the night that Franklin Women would have grown to where it is now. The other third factor, which has been critical to this idea flourishing and ultimately having impact is that from day one, it has been delivered with authenticity. When I talk about delivering an idea with authenticity, I really talk about it twofold. It's being authentic in yourself, but also, also ensuring that the idea itself is authentic. Both of these have been critical in the delivery of Franklin Women. From the very beginning, I have tried to stay true to myself. But over these five years, it has been really hard to always feel that as I am, I have enough to deliver and grow a social enterprise in the diversity space. As I said, I'm a scientist. I have no formal skills in business, nor any formal training in diversity and inclusion. Ultimately, I've been learning as I go. And it's really been those times where I've hit road bumps along the way that this lack of formal training has been forefront of my mind. It also was compounded by these times when I constantly compare my own personal qualities with the qualities that you think people who lead an organisation have, that stereotype of what a leader is. They're tough. They're intimidating. They're often scary. Me, on the other hand, I talk a lot and as you can see, I smile way too much. <laughs> I always had felt that really to bring my idea to something of impact, I had to be someone that I'm not. But over the years, I've really come to realise that the fact that I have brought my authentic self to Franklin Women has really been critical in setting the culture of the organisation, but also the wider Franklin Women community. Our volunteer peer advisory committee who meet every month come with their authentic selves, feeling comfortable to bring new ideas to the table, but also challenge each other on theirs. This essential to us being an innovative organisation. It's also meant that every single Franklin Women event has an inclusive feel. 
no matter where you are in your Franklin, on your uh, journey in the health and medical research sector, what role you have, you're welcome to be there. And then it's meant that this has grown into a community who value the differences within the sector, but also are willing to lift each other up and offer each other support. It's also meant that our growing network of members, of partners, and just of supporters have really been willing to come on this journey with me. Like I said, I've been learning as I go. And even though everyone has celebrated the successes, they have always been there and been patient when I haven't got things right. And I can't tell you how valuable this has been. So being authentic to yourself is one thing, but actually working to keep the idea of Franklin women authentic to its own contributions to diversity and inclusion in the sciences has been its own challenge as well. Just after I launched Franklin Women, the sector was really starting to pay attention to the lack of diversity in our workforce, particularly the challenges faced by women. This meant that at all levels, important initiatives started to be introduced. The Australian government was investing financial support into the issue. Peak bodies were showing leadership about how they can actually encourage systemic changes. And individual organisations were introducing groups and initiatives to bring about change at the bottom. So while all this momentum was so exciting and encouraging, it was also very overwhelming to try and not get caught up in the activities of everyone else and every other group, and also the lure of trying to expand our focus to everything and everyone. And really, this just wasn't going to be possible for really a volunteer organisation that is run by, by myself as a side hustle and a small group of women in the sector. Rather, the idea of Franklin Women has stayed authentic to the original purpose, a social enterprise at the grassroots level that aims to offer practical initiatives to support women in their career journeys, both in or outside of academia. It is meant that because I have remained authentic, but also that my idea that we have been able to deliver impact. Franklin Women has gone grown on to offer 25 professional development events across broad topics um, to help women in the sector. We've launched the first cross-organisational mentoring program that's targeted right to that pinch point of where we lose women but also trained up senior male and female leaders on how to create an inclusive culture, an innovative carer scholarship that has inspired more like it around the country, and meaningful partnerships with health and medical research organisations around Australia. It is the fact that we've been able to have this impact that I feel confident that this fleeting idea that I had on a plane has actually flourished to grow into an impactful social enterprise that has affected the lives of thousands of people working across the health and medical research sector and beyond. So on that, I leave you with this. The next time that you have a fleeting idea, if there is a need, you have the courage to act and you feel that you can actually deliver it with authenticity, then maybe this is the idea that will flourish and will go on to have impact not only on your life, but the life of thousands of people around you. Thank you. Dr. Melina Gogosakis there, ending her TEDx talk, How to Turn One Big Idea into a Social Enterprise. In her case, the big idea was Franklin Women, a community to help women in the medical research field. Similarly, our final talk for today is also about helping women in medicine. Only in this one, the focus is on the patients. 
Carice Hyun is a biostatistician and researcher at the University of Sydney. Her talk aims to raise awareness about heart disease for women and is appropriately titled, Heart Disease is Not Just a Men's Disease. This is John. John is an Australian man in his 60s, doesn't like going to see his doctor, and he only goes because his wife Mary nags him too, and she usually goes with him. But when he does go, he does get his blood, uh, well, heart disease checked. And this includes checking his risk factors for heart disease like blood pressure and cholesterol. Now, one day, he has a sudden pain in his chest. So his wife quickly calls an ambulance. It arrives early and he is rushed to the nearest hospital. At the emergency department, he is seen by a doctor immediately. And he finds out that he is having a heart attack. Now, within two hours, he has a life-saving surgery to open his arteries. And then in about a couple of days, he's discharged. And he's discharged with all five medications that he's supposed to take after surviving a heart attack. He's also discharged with a referral to rehabilitation for his heart. And his wife, Mary, is told to make sure that he has good heart, healthy heart health. Oh, sorry, healthy heart diet. <laughs> and also that he sees his doctor regularly. And this is Mary. Mary also goes to see her doctor a little more often than John does, and she goes alone. Her doctor asks her whether she had her mammogram done, when her last um, bowel cancer screening was, and also about her mood. But is not too concerned about her heart. He thinks that women don't really get heart disease. So one day, about a year after John had his heart attack, she is out at the shops. She doesn't feel well. She's tired and feels like she has indigestion. Mm, uneasy, unusual. So she drives herself to the nearest hospital. She waits, she waits three, four hours, and she is finally seen by a doctor, and then the doctor thinks it's indigestion. So he prescribes her indigestion medication and sends her home. Next day, she wakes up feeling even worse. John has an urgent business meeting to attend, so she doesn't say anything to John and waits for him to go to work. And then she finally drives herself back to the hospital. Again, she waits and waits, and doctor finally sees her. This time, a different doctor, who is more concerned, does a blood test and finds out that she's having a heart attack. And then the doctor tells her to rest well for the evening, and then the following day, she's discharged with a couple of medications. She doesn't receive the surgery to open her arteries. She doesn't receive the referral to rehabilitation program. Do you see any differences? You might think this is an exaggerated story, but it happens every day in Australia and all around the world. To put things into perspective, a young Australian woman, this, is, this only happened a couple of months ago in 2019. A young Australian woman had chest pain, so she went to the hospital quickly. She um, waited and finally saw a doctor who told her, uh, don't think this is a heart attack. You're too young. I'm a research fellow and a biostatistician. I use large national and international health data sets to, uh, to understand and assess how we provide care to people with heart disease. And I have some shocking facts uh, to share with you. And these are from various studies, including some of my own. So first, 
people, even some doctors, still think that heart disease is men's disease and they underestimate and underplay the risk of heart disease in women. Even when heart disease has been the biggest killer, single biggest killer of women for over a decade, it kills 5,000 more women than breast cancer every year, and this is only in Australia, Australia alone. Second, women, they are less likely to get care, or um, they're less likely to get checks for their heart disease um, at the doctors. They, half of the women in fact, um, when they're experiencing heart attack, they're misdiagnosed, there's indigestion, depression, anxiety and muscle pain by doctors. Third, women are less likely to be seen quickly at the emergency department. Women are less likely to receive surgery to open the arteries. Women are less likely to receive the guideline recommended medications. And women are less likely to be referred to rehabilitation programs. And also, last, women don't get enough support from the partners and families. So what can we do? We need to acknowledge and shift our mindsets that heart disease is not men's disease. It's everyone's disease. We also need to remember that both men and women need our heart health checked at least once a year. We also need to remember that there are symptoms of heart attack other than chest pain that are more prevalent in women, and this includes pain in the jaw, neck, shoulder, arm, back, um, this uncomfortable feeling that feels like heartburn, indigestion, nausea, fatigue, breathlessness. And also, we need to remember, women, we need more of you in research studies so that we can represent ourselves. We need to represent ourselves so that more research and advocacy, identifying and highlighting these gaps for women can be done. And also to change the way that medical professionals have been trained from many years ago. So before I go, I have a homework for you all, Johns and the Marys. I want you to take one woman you know, old or young, and who hasn't had their heart health checked in the last year, and get it done. Let's all work together to beat this country's and the world's biggest killer. Thank you. That talk was delivered by Carice Hyun, a biostatistician and researcher at the University of Sydney. You've been listening to 2SER's Talk of the Town, featuring talks from the TEDx Macquarie University event. These talks were brought to you both by TEDx and Macquarie University. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have in this episode. But don't worry, we'll be back next week with another TEDx episode discussing all manner of scientific issues and discoveries. What type of issues and discoveries, you may ask? Well, you'll have to tune in next week at 7pm Sunday to find out. If you want to listen to this episode again, catch up on past episodes of Talk of the Town, or explore other shows from our network, go to 2ser.com 